This is Craig Morris, and you're listening to the Potsdam Summer School Podcast. Hello, everyone. We'll be talking about governance today, so let's start off with a definition of the term. Governance is, of course, about governments and governing, and it usually comes with an adjective such as good or bad governance. So what constitutes good governance? Here's Jasmine Honold of the German Institute of Urban Studies. A participation of stakeholders of private sector, of the, of the greater public, um, the engagement of, um, of, of civil society. Is the administration a good role model? Basically, you have good governance when people think their government is doing a good job. Governance is important in all policymaking. For instance, in the last episode of this podcast, we learned that the Paris Climate Accord is considered a breakthrough because it restored confidence in the process. Ortwin Renn, scientific director of the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies, defined two other terms that are crucial for good governance. The first was agency. So agency means that people have the uh, impression or the feeling that they can work on their own fate. Notice that he said people have the impression or feeling. So what matters is not just whether people actually can determine their own fates, but whether they think they can. We'll come back to feelings and perceptions in a moment. And agency is an individual asset, but it's also a collective asset because very often only community can act because they have the resources while the individual doesn't. So one of the main issues that we have is how can we improve the agency of individuals and of communities in order to make that transition towards sustainability. The second term that's crucial here is one you probably already know, equity. Here's how Ortwin defines it. Equity means the distribution of resources among various populations and individuals. And what we can see is that if individuals really have the possibility to use resources to change their life, that makes a lot of difference. As Ottwin put it, if the top 10% of people, the ones powerful enough to effect change, have everything they need, then change may never come. In terms of governance, equity means finding ways of giving those with less wealth more of a say-so. And the other 90% have no resources, they would like to change society, but don't have the means to do it. So that's where nations and societies just do not move at all, they remain in the same position. So more equity is really the change agent for a better transition towards sustainability. The more people say that their decision makers are out of touch, that the needs of normal people are not taken into consideration, the more we could speak of bad governance. Recently, a majority of the British voted to leave the EU, and a large number of Americans voted for Donald Trump to become president. In both cases, these citizens themselves complained that they did not trust the overall political system. Brexit and Trump's election 
can thus be seen as popular votes of no confidence, as evidence of bad governance. People do not trust governing institutions anymore. That's Pia Schweitzer, project leader at the IASS. They do not trust science. They do not trust experts. Mm -hmm. They do not trust institutions. Mm -hmm. The problem is that still somebody has to decide. In her talk to the summer school, Pia quoted the late American political strategist Lee Atwater, who once said, perception is reality. In 2016, Republican politician Newt Gingrich made headlines for saying that, and I quote, people feel like crime rates are going up, even though official FBI statistics showed that they were going down. The TV moderator called the FBI data facts, but Gingrich countered that his statement was also a fact. People did feel less safe. These are cases of politicians exploiting the gap between perceptions and realities. In good governance, they would ideally try to bridge that gap. That's what Pia, as a researcher, is working to help decision makers do. I asked Pia if she felt comfortable quoting Atwater, someone who advised politicians not to close the gap between facts and feelings, but to exploit it. I mean, as a scientist, of course, I feel comfortable with quoting anyone. The problem is to put that into perspective. The thing is that this quote of Lee Atwater exactly emphasizes and illustrates what is going on in certain parts in society and mm -hmm. important parts in society, mm -hmm. which means that people attribute the same weight of, towards feelings as they attribute towards expert knowledge. Can we use better governance to bring together, um, I mean, I'm going to put this in American terms, to bring together Trump voters and climate people? Yes, with a lot of effort, I think we can reach this goal. And this is indeed the goal or the underlying goal of the inclusive governance approach. That's what you're working on. That's what I'm working on. So we need to restore people's trust in government to make society sustainable. If people don't believe their government is working for them, then we cannot mitigate climate change. And to come back to equity, it can have to do with money, but it is also a gender issue. Gotelind Alba is founder of Gender CC, an NGO working on climate gender justice. I asked her why gender is important in the climate change debate. Just imagine you're, you're standing out in the rain and the question is, um, do you have an umbrella or not? And this makes a big difference. And, and the situation we have in the world is that most women sort of go without an umbrella and are completely exposed to what happens outside. Let's do a little thought experiment now. What do you think is the biggest thing that would help women cope with climate change? Give yourself a few seconds to think about it. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm going to guess that few of you came up with Gotelin's answer. I know I didn't. 
She says walkable cities help women the most. A walkable city is basically one in which people can do without a car. They can walk to most places they need to go. They can also ride their bikes, so a walkable city has good bike lanes. And public transportation also allows people to walk around more of the city. I asked Gotelind why walkable cities are so important for women in particular. She said we have to remember what women do during the day. They bring the kids to school, they go shopping, they go to the job, and so on. They have very complex patterns, we, we know that, while the men, they go just back and forth to work and, and home. And on the other hand, it's the transport modes. So um, men use much more cars than women, and in, in all cities in the world where studies have been done, um, it was clear that women use more public transport. She's speaking globally, of course. In North America, women are big buyers of large SUVs, which give them a sense of security. In Europe, women feel safe enough to take buses and trams, but in general... They're much more depending on, on livability, walkability, mm. public transport, closeness of services, um, and of course also of, of safety. She gave the example of the woman raped and killed in India a few years back. You may remember the story. It drew international attention. That was done in a bus, in a public bus. Mm. So a sense of safety is crucial for public transport to work. Self-driving buses are a good example of how gender issues can change the debate. You don't have a driver, but you have to have a, a, a security guard. Mm -hmm. Consideration of gender thus changes how we think about solutions. There's one really funny part to this story as well. GenderCC, Gotelin's NGO, launched a campaign called the Gender into Urban Climate Change Initiative. The acronym is spelled G-U-C-C-I, and it's pronounced Gucci. Under the Gucci label, so to speak, Gotelin's colleagues go into towns like Jakarta and Johannesburg and talk about gender issues within urban planning. Gotelin says the acronym has proven useful. You know, the point is that the decision makers who decide about funding, it's always good to have something where they can smile a little bit. And, and I know from a women that support the project that it worked. It worked for me too. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> Gender CC works with cities to improve walkability, so the NGO addresses local issues. That's important because we need a bottom-up approach to complement top-down policymaking. I think at the moment the SDGs, because of their development, and because they're so anchored in the UN system. They, of course, work according to the paradigm logic of the UN system, and that is a very administrative logic. That's Petra Kunkel of the Collective Leadership Institute. She's talking about the UN's SDGs, arguably the most top-down policymaking of all. We talked about SDGs in the last episode of this podcast. Because they're so tied to the commitment by governments, they work with the government logic. And the normal government logic up until today is top-down implementation. 
of certain things. And if, if we look at, at the administrative challenge, the global administrative challenge, then I'm not saying this is a completely wrong approach, but I'm probably saying this is not fast enough. Because administrative processes that do not have ownership of people, anything can slow them down. Petra says people need to take ownership of sustainability campaigns. That's what is meant by bottom-up. Citizens themselves need to say that sustainability is their hobby, something they identify with and take pride in. It can't be just something our political leaders tell everyone to do. We're going to have our city being an SDG city, you know, so you need to have self-organized, self-steered, self-dynamic processes, and you need to create an enabling environment for that to happen. And then you can still do your administrative processes, but they're not leading to 2030 being successful. So you need to kind of, you know, get the, get the dynamic, get the spirit going. How can people become involved then? Lydia Olaka, a speaker from the University of Nairobi, gave a specific example of people participating. It comes from a project in Kenya where citizens collect data for scientists and policymakers. Schools adopt a certain river which is passing through their uh, school. And then in this particular place, they go once a month to collect, to look at the rocks and see what kind of uh, micro-invertebrates and macro-invertebrates are living there because these invertebrates are very sensitive to changes in the water quality. This project is an example of what's called citizen science. In this particular case, young people learn something for life. They understand that if something is changed in the environment, the lakes and the rivers are going to respond and it's going to kill some of the uh, invertebrates that are important in that river. This activity helps provide scientists with data and helps citizens understand the science. It brings science to a very low level that they can see the impact directly. In another case, Lydia found that she could date the groundwater in the area she studied. We know that there's water in the ground. Some of this water is renewable, some of it is non-renewable. And renewable means that it can be recharged or replenished during our lifetime. Some of it, like if you look at areas in um, North Africa, which are now desert, the water is fossil water. This water was there tens of thousands years ago. That fossil water is non-renewable. She was able to test helium in the water to see how old it was up to an age of 70 and you're not going to believe what this is based on. The idea is that there's helium within the environment, which was put in during the bomb testing in the 40s, and whenever it rains... Bomb testing in the 40s? Yeah, uh, when they were doing a bomb testing. Nuclear the, bombs? Nuclear bombs. So we did nuclear bomb testings in the United States and Russia, and that affects your groundwater in Kenya? Exactly. So this is global. Yeah, so the bomb testing were done, we have helium in the air. So this, um, when there's rainfall, the rainfall comes with this particular signature. Yeah, so it has, you can trace some helium in, in, all, in many parts of the world, north and also a little bit south, yeah. 
This is what we can test later on. When it stays in the ground for a while, we test the ratio mm -hmm. between the tritium and the helium and get a, an age. Lydia can use this information to tell people where pesticides from agriculture can leach into groundwater quickly. She says pesticide use should be reduced anyway, but we really don't want it in wells that we drink water from. Many places water is used raw without testing for all these kinds of pesticides. People think it's safe. You don't see it. You don't see how it is being uh, uh, contaminated. People always think it's safe. Uh -huh. So the key statement there is really to be able to test the water. People not only need to be educated, they can also participate in collecting water samples. What is important for me is to the need to bring all the stakeholders uh -huh. and really think about the people who are using the ground. Petra Kunkel agrees that citizen science is important. She talks about metrics or the taking of measurements. People getting involved in metrics is unfortunately today very rare. At the moment the data generation is usually in government or it is in science or it is in probably even companies you know or consultancies or whatever mm -hmm. but the data gathering is not on the ground and uh, with modern technology we have all the means of data gathering on the ground if people think themselves into being part of developing and feeding these metrics. And just a kind of funny example that is a totally f funny example, but you know where governments are already using that is in Denmark they have a, the, the, the municipalities in Denmark have an app where you can uh, send a photograph of garbage like you know something not managed well or so. They use it as a feedback system for their municipality and say please kind of help us you know keep, keep our cities tidy and we can't be everywhere at the same time. So we need you, send the location, send the picture, that's all we need, and then we take care of it and give you a feedback. This is where things get tricky. Let's do a little thought experiment. Imagine that the mayor of your city announced a new service. Everyone is invited to take photos of parts of town where something needs cleaning up. All you need to do is upload a photo and the location and the city will take care of the rest. Would this lead to a cleaner city or to neighbors denouncing each other? If the campaign backfires in this way, that's a good sign of bad governance. People obviously had pent-up resentment. If the campaign goes well, you may have enjoyed years and decades of good governance. In other words, Good governance is not just about people having confidence in their political leaders. It's also about not having giant rifts in society. Citizens within one and the same country cannot see each other as enemies if we are going to work on sustainability together. So it means that you can only do this, this kind of empowering metrics and bottom-up metrics in a, in a context of good governance. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't be able to do that in a context where there is no good governance. At the moment, the, the, the whole metrics around sustainability, and particularly SDG implementation, do not really have bottom-up processes. All right, so how can we bring people together who are arguing about something? How can we close gaps that divide society? 
Professor Norio Okada, an IASS fellow from Kyoto University, conducted a workshop during the summer school on exactly this question. Back in his home country of Japan, Norio had worked on coming up with ways to facilitate dialogue in communities divided over some issue. He had the summer school participants reenact one of the activities he successfully used in Japan. First, the entire group of around 40 participants broke up into five groups of eight people. Each group then began folding its own giant piece of paper around the size of a tabletop. You may have heard of the Japanese art of paper folding called origami. This was a very basic version of that, and the goal was not to create something fancy, but merely to have creases marking concentric squares on the paper. The concentric squares represented time. There were three of these squares. So they represented step one, step two, and step three. The four sides of the squares represented different aspects that needed to be taken into account. Management, information, finance, and logistics. The groups were then asked to imagine that they lived in one community together. For the exercise, they had to come up with some problem that they wished to fix within this imaginary community. Remember, the participants at the summer school were from every continent on the planet. Once they had picked a topic to resolve, they had to analyze it from these four different perspectives, the four sides of the square. Two people sat on each side and viewed the issue only from that perspective. Then they had to come up with three steps from each perspective. They wrote all of this down on the giant piece of paper, and then, as a group, they turned the paper 90 degrees. Now, everyone was viewing this issue from someone else's perspective. The idea of having groups come together in an exercise that encourages switching viewpoints is nothing new. But what's really interesting about Norio's exercise is the first part, having them try to fold a giant piece of paper together. I asked him to comment on the purpose of that. Is this uh, process of having them work together, this is part of the idea of getting them to resolve a problem yes. in the beginning? Yes. I come up with some implementable solution that right. you get finally committed and yeah. declared. That's the final thing. Right. But the people who would do this mm -hmm. in, in a real workshop, mm -hmm. they would be on different sides of an issue, mm -hmm. and you would bring them together and have them solve something together first. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So, you need some warming up process. Yeah. Yes. You create a group mm -hmm. first. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you need a different ways to uh, invite people. In other words, the whole purpose of having people fold paper together is to get them to interact with each other in order to achieve something as a group. In this case, simply folding a giant sheet of paper. By doing so, Norio creates a single team out of parties that enter the room 
as potential warring factions. It's really important that the task the group has to solve not be hard. The most important thing is for the group exercise to be successful. In the beginning, we just want to bring people together. If you're in one of these exercises, you might come to appreciate someone else's sense of humor. You might discover someone's general willingness to help others. You might detect that someone who has a lot of useful input is a bit shy in groups and requires a bit of encouragement. In other words, you have an opportunity to learn to like your neighbor. You have an opportunity to build community. When it came time for the five groups to present their findings to each other, the first finding was quite interesting. Every group had chosen to work on food. One way to get people involved in sustainability is through their stomachs. One group wanted to create a farmer's market to address the problem of food deserts. We talked about this topic in a previous episode. But the people in charge of finance within the group told everyone they needed to stay within budget. How much money did they have? It was 100 euros, but we have consumed less than 50. Another aspect that had to be taken into account was logistics. Here's how the food waste group decided to handle food that would otherwise have been thrown away. Our, our logistic departments, they decided that instead of creating, uh, I mean, a new uh, garage or a place for to collect the food, we can use the, uh, the reception of the same building to utilize the uh, uh, to further to collect all the food and then dispatch it to the people who really required it. Solutions proposed for one community would not necessarily work in another. This is why we need solutions for specific locations and finding them requires local knowledge, so we need citizen involvement. One participant from another group said that collecting and redistributing food waste would not work in his home country of Brazil. In Brazil, it's not allowed, the, the public health is not allowed to, to capture the, the, the foods in the restaurants and serve for the other purpose. So how can you think that you solve this problem? For Norio, the most important thing was that the solutions that the groups came up with were really going to happen in their own communities, not that these solutions be applicable everywhere. To create team spirit in the community, we need a success story, even a small one. I participated in one of these groups and was asked to present our findings. And so in the beginning the idea was we would just meet somewhere and cook together and uh, the people who ate meat would go ahead and do what they do, but the others would serve other meals 
and the people who didn't know like how to eat without meat could then try some of the other things, right? And just so they overcome that original fear of nothing tastes good if you don't have meat in it. We've already talked about finance and logistics. A third side of the paper square was information. Uh, in the information part, um, in the first week you would gather the, ben the benefits of the diet with less meat uh, and gather also um, a collection of recipes, interesting recipes, that would be provided to this group in order for them to, to understand other ways to cook. The fourth and last perspective, the last side of the paper square, was management. Here's what the group working on the farmer's market said. Okay, so uh, we found that, okay, what kind of the elements we need, like uh, we need the, the first the manager, which is also could be like the interviewer and go to the each community, like the church, like the each community and just ask what kind of the food do you need, how much do you need, and then another person to like the finding the farmers' networks that they can connect the farmers together without uh, using a lot of money, and also to distributor with their with they come with their own uh, truck. Uh, so it's very important because yeah, we don't yeah we don't want it to put another money for their truck. Or just creating and a space at uh, with coordination with the city, you know, just giving them a space because it's not a permanent thing; it's a temporary thing. So they can place it for like one month, and then after the for the seasonal fruits, and afterwards they will not be there. So it's kind of coordination with the city, but the city will coordinate, community will coordinate with the city directly. So for the proposal of a temporary farmers market, citizens would have to work with city officials. That's a great start towards bottom-up sustainability. Norio stressed the importance of success. He kept telling us we had to really make it happen, whatever it was we decided. Actually, Evo, a participant from Nigeria, said she would not come to my place for a vegetarian meal because she needs her protein. I'm saying let's make it work. What's your thought analysis like? Would you like to come over and, and cook at my place? I mean, we can, we can make that work, right? I mean, all this stuff is, is easy. I mean, who would say no to that? I would say no because I wouldn't want my meat to be taken away for any reason. It's not reducing meat that you're reducing protein. You replace it. And so, the participants at the summer school shared information about healthy diets. For Norio, that in itself was a success. People who disagreed on a topic were engaged in a polite, civil conversation. To do, do this, you have to be convinced. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you, so first, but also among yourselves, mm -hmm. you have to keep convincing each other. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this will influence others. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, not just to influence others, yes. but sort of say, try to become some model mm -hmm. within this circle. Uh, I think that's what you're saying, but mm -hmm. sort of this should be stressed. The farmer's market group apparently wasn't so convinced. We couldn't convince each other <laughs> for the 100% of time. We were arguing that this is not going to work. But actually, we did this one of the projects in New Orleans. New Orleans. Did you catch that? That was Sajani, a participant from Nepal. She had previously participated in a project in New Orleans to create a real farmer's market, and it worked. I was born in New Orleans, so this news really hit home.
New Orleans is known for its cuisine, but since Hurricane Katrina in 2005, few grocery stores have reopened. It's become hard to buy affordable fresh food in the city. You did this in New Orleans. Yeah. That's where I'm from. Yeah, we did this. Oh. This was for a small area and we created our truck, fresh fruit truck, but we work with university over there and students, churches, so it was kind of very motivating for me. One participant noted that turning the square by 90 degrees so that everyone had to take a different viewpoint didn't automatically lead people to see each other's perspectives. How do you prevent when you change? Because the changing part is really important, right? Mm -hmm. When we switched sides, yes. we started explaining to the other group what we originally meant, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And in Defending the end, ourselves. Exactly, exactly. We became defensive and then we didn't, like, it wasn't Nobody won. It wasn't, yeah. a it wasn't creative yeah. anymore. Well, I, how do you prevent it? Okay, I, well, say, well, it needs facilitation. It needs facilitation. In other words, a moderator has to be present to encourage everyone to look for ways to improve the project from their new perspective. The moderator would step in if people started to become defensive about their old perspectives. But what I really learned from Norio's workshop was that feeling successful is crucial. Often in sustainability, we're looking for some technological breakthrough that will fix everything, a silver bullet. Or we feel powerless because we have no input at top levels where decisions are made. What Norio taught the group was that small steps at a local level where normal people have an impact are crucial. He even discouraged us from thinking too big. As he kept repeating, you have to make it happen. If our idea fails, we might think that we, as citizens, can't get stuff done. So it's better to think in bite-sized chunks. As we progress from minor success to minor success, our impact grows. People not involved start talking about us and taking note. We begin to reach critical mass and our impacts are increasingly significant. People feel overwhelmed by the complexity and remoteness of climate change. It's too far off. Temperature increases by the end of the century. And let's face it, people like you and me can't really impact the Paris Climate Agreement or the Sustainable Development Goals anyway. But we can all make a difference at the community level. So policymakers need to find ways of getting citizens involved in improving their communities. The experts would then encourage citizen groups to be active in ways that improve science, and people would learn to accept science as something they are involved in. Citizens would also remain committed because they are simultaneously making their immediate lives better. That is why sustainability needs good governance.
The 2017 Potsdam Summer School was hosted by the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies, the Alfred Wegener Institute, the German Research Center for Geosciences, the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, and the University of Potsdam in cooperation with the capital city of Potsdam. The music you are listening to is A Perceptible Shift by Andy Cohen, and the water you heard was recorded at the Dreisam River. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and if so, tell your friends and share links to the show on social media. For now, this is Craig Morris, Senior Fellow at the IASS, signing off.